Thank you, Dan and Ensemble, Mr. Millis, for beautiful worship today. Good to see you in God's house on this Father's Day. Turn your Bibles to the Lucan Gospel, Luke chapter 7, for a sermon entitled, He Graced Them. He Graced Them. Apparently, I have a reputation for being very pointed and direct and asking less than cuddly questions during possible employment interviews. For example, I remember Dr. Barrett's interview over two decades ago. I turned and I asked, what is the single most important element for a good Sunday school experience? What is the single most important element for a good Sunday school experience. This is your future minister of education. There was only one right answer, the wrong answer, he is done. You'll be happy to know that Dr. Barrett sits here because he gave the right answer. He said, the teacher, that's right. The single most important element for a good Sunday school experience is a strong teacher. For a good teacher can do something even with bad literature or curriculum. But you see, a, a bad teacher can't do anything even with good curriculum. So Sunday school teachers are a prized commodity at First Baptist Church because we know that your work, your education, your skills, and your talents that a good Sunday school leader is the most important element to good Bible study. On another occasion, we were interviewing a potential children's minister, and I posed the question, when it comes right down to it, what is more important, policies or people? When it comes right down to it, what is more important, policies or people? She replied, well, policies and rules are there for a reason, and they're awfully important. Robbie said he knew right then and there the deal was not going to happen. There wasn't any saving her. She had sunk her ship with me. She had the spirit of Simon in our biblical story today. You see, she was like a Pharisee. Law, law, rule, rule, always go by the law, focus on the letter of the law, and forget about the people that the law was designed to serve and protect. Well, let me give you a story how this might play out. Someone who's more focused on the rules and the laws than they are grace. This is a true story. There's a a seminary professor who had a very strict policy regarding his term papers. Every term paper in the seminary during the entirety of the semester had to be turned in on time or you miss one, you miss five minutes past the, the day's period and well, you received an F not only for that paper, but for the entirety of the seminary course. Now, let me be fair enough to the professor to say, the syllabus was quite clear that if you were late on a single paper, it was over, you made an F. A student missed turning in a paper on time, of course. He goes to the seminary professor, he begins a conversation. Dr. Smith, I know the syllabus, I know the policy, but I at least want you to know why my paper was not turned in yesterday. I I just thought you ought to know what occurred 
that would cause me to break the hard and fast rule. You see, my wife began having birth pangs early. I, I rushed her to the hospital, and, and shortly after midnight, right when the paper was due, my wife gave birth to our boy. He weighed eight pounds, and we named him Kenneth. Professor looked curious. He listened with interest. You could tell he was struggling with this one. He had to think about it. He kind of rolled forward in his chair and rolled backward in his chair and rolled forward. He stared up at the ceiling for a little while. And then finally he paused and looked at the student and said, well, then you will receive an F for my course. The news spread rapidly across the seminary campus. A large delegation of students came to the professor's office to protest. Why, how could you? Why have you been so harsh? Why have you been so cruel, they demanded. And the professor replied, at the beginning of the semester, I gave my word concerning the timing of the papers. And if the word of a professor at a Christian seminary cannot be trusted, then whose word can? He gets an F, get out of my office. I think they probably should have named him Simon there at the seminary because he matches the Simon in our story today. Well, let me personalize that story. I was not that student, but I have a story very similar to that story. Something very similar happened to me. I was enrolled in a history class under Professor Robert Reed at Baylor University, the renowned masterful teacher who could make ancient history come to life. When you were in his class, the Romans and the Greeks were in the room. He was that good. And during that semester of the PhD program, my first child, Ryan, was born. She came early, two weeks early, had no way of knowing she was going to come early, and therefore I missed his last exam. So I showed up the next class period, and I said, Professor Reed, I'm sorry I wasn't here for the exam, but my first child was born at the very time you were giving the exam, and I, I felt like I needed to be there. And well, I, I was up all night, you understand, and well, I just didn't make it for the exam, but I, I'll do whatever you need me to do. I'll write a paper, I'll take the exam now. Reverend Batson, he said, You've got an A in this class already. You tell the wife congratulations. I felt a wave of grace. Two men, both teaching in Christian institutions, both trying to be like Christ in their decision, but with completely different responses to the same circumstance. Well, which one do you think really exhibited the spirit of Christ. That brings us to our story today, our text today, about Simon, Jesus, and a woman who's a sinner. Jesus knew what they'd been saying about him. Look at verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard and a friend with tax gatherers and sinners. Well, that's what they were mumbling about Jesus. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. Well, we don't even like the company he keeps. 
He's hanging out with tax collectors. Man, we have seen this rabbi with the sinners. Now, Jesus had been accused of welcoming sinners into his company. He's a glutton and a drunkard because he goes to the wrong houses and eats with the wrong people. You know, people like Matthew and the tax collectors, the sinners. We also learn in our text today that Jesus is no respecter of persons. Now, long will he go to Matthew's house for a party, but he's also willing to go to a Pharisee's house for a party, a Pharisee named Simon. Look at verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Jesus doesn't play favorites. He'll accept your invitation to dine sinner or saint, riffraff or self-righteous. It didn't matter to Jesus. In fact, in Luke's gospel, on three different occasions, Jesus is invited to dine with a Pharisee. And on each of these occasions, he does dine with a Pharisee, Luke 7, Luke 11, Luke 14. And every occasion in this Lucan gospel, when Jesus responds to the invitation or dines with the Pharisee, he ends up, well, in a rift with the Pharisees, and he sets them straight with his new ethic of the kingdom. The Pharisees, now, we think of them as the bad guys, and that sort of ruins the story. They were not thought of as the bad guys, and they weren't necessarily bad guys. They were the keepers of the law. They took the law of God seriously. They were lay persons. They weren't really clergy persons, and, but they had learned the law. They'd built an oral hedge around the law, and they tried to keep all the law of God. And, well, they were diligent, and they were admired by the people for being the Jews who were doing the right thing and observing the law of Moses. So they're really the good guys. If you're a Jew and you're hearing the story in the first century, by the time we get to chapter 7, Jesus knows the Pharisees' disdain for his open hands and his open heart. Jesus isn't spoiling for a fight, but looking at their history with our Lord, you know, when you put Jesus in the presence of self-righteous people, it's like putting cats and dogs in the same pen, and the fur's going to fly before the story's over. Well, look at verse 37. And behold, there's a woman in the city who's a sinner. Now, how would you like that? She doesn't have a name. She's a sinner. In fact, if, if you miss it, Luke wants you to be sure. Look down at verse 39 at the end. How's he in verse 39? She is a sinner. In verse 47, even Jesus joins in and speaks of her sins. How would you like to be the woman in the story and you're a character and you're identified by your sin? Oh, you know, you know her. She's a sinner. You know the woman who's a sinner came to the party. You know her, the one who sins. Well, 
Behold, there was a woman who was a sinner. Behold. You know that feeling when someone rings the doorbell and you're not expecting anybody to ring the doorbell? That's the behold. Just right down there, the doorbell rang. They're having a party and behold. Ding dong. Somebody showed up to the party that wasn't invited to the party. That's the behold. She shows up with a vial of perfume and a very grateful heart. Now, unlike today, when we live behind walls, life in antiquity was lived in the open. Homes had large courtyards, and the homes were built around the courtyards. They opened the rooms to the courtyard. Entertainment in the first century was often seen as a public affair, and though you might not have an invitation to the party, you could sort of hang out and watch the party as it went on. And in fact, Jesus and Simon might even be out there in the courtyard dining. And behold, in the middle of the party, the doorbell rings, and a woman with a vial of perfume, a woman who's known as the center of the city, she shows up despite the fact that no one bothered to put her name on the guest list. Everybody knows she's a sinner. Well, what is her sin? Is it adultery? Is it prostitution? It, does, it, does it really matter? I think if it really mattered, Luke would have told us. And Luke doesn't tell us what her sin is. And Jesus has a chance, and he just calls it sin. He doesn't tell us what her sin is. So for the purpose of the story, all we need to know is she is a sinner. And what her sin is didn't matter to Luke or Jesus, so it won't matter to us. The woman who's a sinner, she begins to weep. Verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. The woman has so much gratitude that God has forgiven her and realizing the identity of Jesus as being associated with the one who forgives sins, she just begins to weep in his presence and her tears wash his filthy feet. She uses her hair to wipe his feet. She kisses his feet. She anoints his feet with perfume. Tears of rejoicing and the grace of God. The thanksgiving of gratitude. Her actions are absolutely humiliating. Even a first century slave would not be required to wash his master's feet. In those days, streets were dirty, shoes were filthy, and dung was plentiful from the animals. And, well, feet didn't have a, a great reputation in antiquity. I'm not sure feet have fully recovered yet from that reputation, but it certainly wasn't good in antiquity. What does the psalmist say? What do you do to your enemy at the end of the day? Psalm 110, you make him your footstool. You rest your dirty feet on the one you defeat. Feet didn't have a good reputation. What does John the Baptist say? That he is so unworthy, he is not even fit to touch down and touch the feet of Jesus by loosening the thong of his sandal. 
Yes, feet in the Bible don't have a good reputation, with one exception, Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, who announces peace, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. Yes, though your enemy became your footstool, and while even a slave didn't have to untie the thongs of the sandal of the master, there in Isaiah the prophet said, there's a set of feet coming, and those feet are going to be beautiful feet, because those feet will announce the arrival of the kingdom of God, and those feet will declare good news as they stride across the mountain and say, God's reign and rule has arrived. And then, have you ever noticed in Matthew 28, when the women encounter the resurrected Jesus, it's no mistake that it's, they grab his feet. They grab his feet, the part of the body that Antiquity wouldn't want to touch. They, they grab his feet, for his feet are the feet of Isaiah 52, the feet that bring Good news. With verse 39, we get to read the mind of the Pharisee. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, notice the thought process of a Pharisee. Sometimes my thought process mirrors exactly this process, that God agrees with me, and I know that she's a sinner, and if he were with God like I'm with God, then he would not let her touch him. That's his thought process. You can kind of hear the disdain in his voice. Well, if he knew, if this man, if this man knew, look at verse 39, if this man, if he really were a prophet, prophets are like the hounds of heaven. They can sniff out sin. He's not sniffing out the sin in this woman, and therefore, well, he's not a prophet because he doesn't think like I think. Jesus is prophetic enough to read Simon's mind. Simon, I want to tell you a story. Look at verse 40. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Well, say it, teacher. There's a moneylender. There are two folk who owe him some money. One owes him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither one has the means to repay. The moneylender just tears up the IOUs, lets him go, and says, forget about it, guys. I'll just forgive the debt. The translation literally is this. He graced them. The money lender, that's their title, comes from that, that verse. He graced them. Your translation may say, he graciously forgave them. Verse 42, he graciously forgave them. Literally, he graced them. Which one of these debtors will love the moneylender more? And Simon says, I guess the one that he forgave the most money. And Jesus says, you are correct. Do you see this woman who entered your house? 
You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss, but she's kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. You have not, but she. You have not, but she. You have not, but she. Simon knew the protocol. Students and disciples would kiss the hand of their teacher at a greeting. Equal men would kiss each other on the cheek, but no one was ever expected to kiss anybody's feet. Simon, you have not, but she. Jesus says to the woman in verse 48, your sins have been forgiven. It's a done deal with Jesus. He did see her sins, but her faith has saved her. Quickly, we learn, first of all, from this story, it is dangerous to only see the sin of others and not see your own sin, the sin of self. Here's the oddity of the whole story. Simon, throughout the story, keeps labeling the woman a sinner. At the end of the story, he's the sinner. You see that? It is so easy for him to see her sin, but he, he cannot and does not see his own. Simon's right. Jesus does recognize sin when it's in his presence, and he recognizes Simon's sin. It is so easy for me to see your sin. Your anger, your gossip, your pride is so hard to see my own. Second of all, forgiveness creates gratitude and love. You see, Simon in the story ends up being a sinner too, just like the woman. And, but his sins are probably more socially respectable. You know, pride and arrogance and hard-heartedness and insensitivity. And I can certainly see that he has a judgmental spirit. The things that people rarely identify as sin, whatever her sin is, it's known. And, well, it's public. But having torn up the IOUs, Forgiveness creates gratitude and love. Have you ever wept because Jesus forgave you? Have you ever been so grateful about the cross that the thought of the cross would make you weep at the forgiveness you receive from Jesus? The thirdly, you learn to forgive by being forgiven. You see, if we have been forgiven by God, then we too must forgive those who've wronged us. We remember that model prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we never say this part, but at the end of the Lord's Prayer, it just says, if you don't forgive others, then you will not be forgiven, period. Period. Those who are grateful, those who have gratitude for God's grace can do nothing else but forgive. If you're truly forgiven, you will forgive. And fourthly, and astonishingly, Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Look how it ends in verse 49. And they say, who is this man who even forgives sins? 
Only one can forgive sins, and that one is God himself. Only God can say, all of our sin against God and God only have I sinned and done evil in his sight, says the psalmist. All of our sin, though it may be against a brother or sister, ultimately all of our sin is against God, and therefore only God can forgive or release our sin. And when Jesus says to the woman, hey, your sins are forgiven, the people say, now what kind of prophet is this? Yeah, you're right, Simon. He's not just a prophet. You got that one right. For a prophet can't forgive sins. Only God can pardon. Not a prophet. There's a modern story, true or not, I don't know, but it doesn't seem to matter. Joe was driving down the highway faster than he should, 73 miles per hour in the 55 zone. Fourth time in as many months. How could one guy get caught speeding so often? The cop steps out of his car, the dreaded big pad in his hand in those days, and Joe looks, it's Bob. He goes to church with Bob. Oh, no, this is awful. Here comes Bob, the cop I go to church with. He's about to catch me and, and write me a ticket. A guy who just happens to be a little eager to get home from work that day, and so... Well, Joe jumps out of his car. He approaches Officer Bob, the one he sees every Sunday. He'd never seen him in a uniform before. Hi, Bob, he says. Fancy meeting you like this. Hello, Joe. No smile from Bob. Guess you caught me red-handed trying to get home to the wife and the kids, trying to be light about it all. Yes, I guess. Bob seems uncertain. I've had some long days in the office lately, you know, the wife said something about roast tonight, and you know what I mean, just trying to get home early. I know what you mean, Bob replied, but I also know that you have a reputation for speeding in our city. Oh, this might not go like it had been planned, and so he changed tactics. He says, well, what'd you clock me at, Bob? 73, he said. Would you get back in your car? No, no, not 73. The minute I saw your lights, I looked down and it was 65. So it wasn't 73, it was 65. Would you get back in your car, Joe, Bob said. Bob slumped through that little door that was still open in his car and hunched down and left the window rolled down just a little bit while Bob was working, riding that pad, riding on that dreaded pad, and he ripped it off and he stuck it through the little two-inch window gap that was left there. And, well, Joe couldn't help himself, couldn't get the snare. Thanks a lot, Bob. In fact, it's going to be quite a few Sundays before I sit on that guy's pew again, Joe thought to himself. As he opened up the paper, is this some sort of joke? This isn't a ticket. What is this? Joe began to read. Dear Joe, once upon a time, I had a daughter. She was six when she was killed by a car, a speeding driver. He had a fine and three months in jail, and then he was free. Free to hug his daughters, all three. I only had one. And I'm going to have to wait to heaven to be able to hug her again. A thousand times I've tried to forgive that man. A thousand times I thought I had. Maybe I did, but I need to do it again, I can tell today. Even now, pray for me and be careful. Bob, all I have left out there is a son. 
Joe turned around in time to see Bob's car pull off, head down the road, and Joe just sat and watched until it disappeared. Stunned in silence, the silence that comes when you get to drink from the goblet of grace. God had a son. His life was taken by my sin and yours. And he lifts this goblet of grace all the way to our lips and he says, drink deeply, gulp graciously. You need all that I can give in order to be clean. He graced them. I love that translation. He graced you. He graced me. Who is this that has the power to forgive sins? The one who went to the cross and rose again. The only one who can ever, ever grace you. Let us pray. Oh God, thank you for the grace we receive and the power and the story of Jesus. Amen.